Hey guys, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Shivani. And I'm Alyssa, and we are very excited to have Professor, Professor Randall Kennedy joining us here today. Professor Randall Kennedy is the Michael R. Klein Professor at Harvard Law School, where he teaches courses on contracts, criminal law, and the regulation of race relations. Both inside the lecture hall and out, Professor Kennedy is known for his fearlessness in tackling sensitive racial issues and for challenging audiences to confront their own racial prejudices and the prejudices embedded in society. Welcome to the show, Professor Kennedy. Thank you so much for having me. Um, so just to, you know, go on more of a background sort of question, um, how did you become interested in the legal profession? Um, and, you know, was there something specific within your childhood, within your academic career that sort of captured your interest within that realm and pushed you to pursue the legal profession? Probably the most important thing is my older brother. So my older brother, uh, Henry Kennedy Sen uh, Jr., uh, he's older than, he's, he's seven years my senior. He went to law school. Uh, he became a prosecutor, then he became a judge. And uh, generally in my life, I uh, had generally followed in my brother's footsteps. My brother was a, um, a swimmer, I became a swimmer. My brother became a tennis player, I became a tennis player. My brother went to, uh, became a lawyer, I became a lawyer. Was there any sibling rivalry? Uh, not all that much. We've been, we're, 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 we're very close, we talk every day. Um, he's really been an inspiring figure in my life. Mm -hmm. And he's probably the most, that's the single most important reason why I became a lawyer. I should mention, by the way, that my younger sister is a lawyer, too. So all oh, three wow. kids in my family were family lawyers. Family profession. Family profession. <laughs> there is another figure that was important in, uh, in my life in terms of, in terms of uh, becoming an attorney, and that is the, um, the great one of the great attorneys in the history of the world, Thurgood Marshall. So um, when I was growing up, I heard Thurgood Marshall's name mentioned in my household a lot. My parents were from the Deep South. They were refugees from Jim Crow segregation. And I often heard them refer to Mr. Civil Rights Thurgood Marshall. And I had the great fort good fortune of working for Thurgood Marshall as one of his law clerks in the 1983-1984 Supreme Court term. But he was always, in my household, uh, one of the great heroes. And so I think that probably his example had something to do with uh, what I've ended up doing mm -hmm. as well. And so your, your choice to basically stay on the academ academia side of things versus you know practicing, mm -hmm. where, did, where did that stem from? You know, it, it, it was, it was one of these things that's partly, partly just fortune. Okay. I was all set to work for the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Mm -hmm. I was just mentioning Thurgood Marshall. Of course, Thurgood Marshall was the director counsel right. of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. I worked for the Legal Defense Fund the summer after my first year of law school. That was by far the most important thing that I did in law school. Mm. I liked law school, you know, I liked it, but <laughs> it didn't, it didn't, it didn't really uh, fire me up. But that summer that I worked for the NAACP Legal Defense Fund absolutely put me on fire with the law. 
And I had a wonderful summer, and I was offered a job by the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, and I was going to go work for them. But when I was a third-year law student, very near the end of my third year, uh, the dean of uh, Harvard Law School, a guy named James Vornberg, called me up and said, you know, had asked me whether I had ever thought about teaching. And I said, well, no. <laughs> um, but I'm game. <laughs> So he said, why don't you come visit Harvard Law School and let's talk. And I did. I visited. I visited again. I, I went up there. I started talking with people. And they were the ones that essentially talked me into pursuing a career in legal academia. Wow. And I've been there for over three decades now. Wow. All right. Next question. So for those of you who don't know, President Obama was in Professor Kennedy's Race, Racism, and American Law class at Harvard for about a day. Professor Kennedy, in your opinion, what would the president have learned had he stayed in your class? Yeah, you know, <laughs> I only learned, I was, I was reading the, um, the Remnick biography <laughs> of uh, President uh, Obama and read that. Now, I remember Barack Obama when he was a student. <laughs> I did not know that he had ever been in any of my classes at all. But I do remember him as a student because right. he was because uh, professors talked about him. I mean, he, you know, I, I clearly remember saying, "Gosh, there's this guy who's in my class who was really just absolutely outstanding," and and more than one, there were a couple. I mean, he was truly an outstanding student. And by the way, I should say now, I I, I do remember quite clearly. Mrs. Obama, because Mrs. Obama, uh, for a time, was a research assistant for me. So I remember her quite well, but I, 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 I don't remember him that well, <laughs> other than other than I knew him, uh, you know, from afar as a student. I did not know he'd come to my class. Now, according to the Remnick biography, he comes to my class and he leaves the class after just one session because... It was so contentious. Mm -hmm. Now, um, I think he missed out <laughs> absolutely on a really good class. I love those classes. I do it a little bit differently now. Those years were very contentious years, and um, I structured it that way. Those those years, there was full of debate. It was wide open. It was uninhibited. And it was fiery. And I think that people learned a lot mm -hmm. from those classes. And I'm, I'm, I'm sorry uh, that uh, he left. I think it would have been useful training <laughs> for his future career as president of the United States. Absolutely. Um, so moving on to a bit more of a, you know, a serious question uh, that, that was basically in the news in November oh. of last year. Um, for those of you who don't know, African-American portraits at Harvard Law School were, were defaced by uh, slivers of black tape. Um, I know you, you know, went into this in quite in length um, mm -hmm. in a op-ed uh, in the New York Times, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, but what do you make of this incident three months after the fact? Has, has anything changed in your thought process or, you know, are, are you still uh, very much where you were then? I'm still pretty much where I was then. Okay. I mean, and where I was then, number one, uh, it was announced recently that the police investigation is completely inconclusive. Mm -hmm. Nobody knows, you know, who put up the tape or, or why. 
at the time, I said, I don't know who's put up the tape, nor is it clear to me why uh, we ought not you know, jump to conclusions. There are a couple of plausible explanations, but you know, we, don't, we, we really don't know. Um, as for my feelings, my feelings have not changed. I said at the time, in fact, the tape incident occurred, I believe, on the last day of my contracts class. And as I was going to class, I remember starting to get emails. And I got a couple of emails from students who's very nice and wrote and said, gosh, we see what's happened. And, you know, we think this is terrible. And we, you know, um, how are you feeling about this? We hope, we, we certainly hope this hasn't hurt your feelings you know, too badly. And on my, on my last day of class, I said, let me just say something about how I, how I feel. And I've been, at, I've been at Harvard Law School for over three decades. I think this is a wonderful community, a wonderful place. Um, let's assume for the sake of argument that this was a racist incident. Let's just assume that. Um, do I think that this is characteristic of Harvard Law School? No. I don't think it's characteristic. Um, I think what's characteristic is the overwhelming response. The overwhelming response, which I think got too little attention, you know, after the after the portraits were defaced, mm -hmm. there was this spontaneous, um, this spontaneous effort on the part of students to voice, number one, their repudiation of, you know, any sort of racist put down of these professors. And second, students put up these stickies all around the portraits saying all sorts of nice things. Thank you. We respect you. We appreciate what you're doing for our community, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. As far as I'm concerned, that was what was characteristic about uh, you know, my law school. Right. And to generalize, to generalize, I think that you know you, you take a campus, a couple thousand people on a campus, a couple of thousand young people on a campus. Um, frankly, Somebody is going to say something despicable. I mean, if you get a thousand people, I don't care, frankly, what age they are, but maybe even particularly, you know, young people away from home for the first time, anything's liable to come burbling out of their mouths. Um, you can't take a look at one thing or two things or three things and say that that's characteristic. Those things often, in my experience, those things are you know, marginal, they're atypical. You have to think, we, we need to be more thoughtful. What's characteristic about our mm -hmm. campuses as opposed to what's marginal about our campuses? Right. And um, I think it's a mistake to, in a way, elevate in a way, we're empowering the reprehensible people mm -hmm. 
by make by putting them at center stage. No, no, they're not at center stage. They're ridiculous people who are saying ridiculous, reprehensible things. Let's keep perspective. Right. So in pursuing this hypothetical, um, if the investigation did show up, uh, if did produce sort of a, you know, an implication that this wasn't racist act, mm -hmm. um, sort of what I'm getting from your answer is that we, rather than elevate using your own word, mm -hmm. um, this, this crime, this despicable act, uh, the response should be positive. You know, there should be a characteristic of looking at the community and sort of uh, gauging the positive aspects of Harvard versus elevating this. What, in your opinion, what would be the appropriate response to this sort of hypothetical? I think it's an interesting one, actually, mm -hmm. because then, I mean, then the question becomes, well, just suppose someone said, um, just suppose someone said, this was a political protest. Mm -hmm. I think we, I think, I think we have a difficulty there. Actually, I mean, after all, um, people put up, you know, stickers in various sorts of ways, voicing all sorts of different political beliefs. I'm not so sure what the appropriate, I think it would be a useful thing to talk about right. what would be the appropriate response. I'm not, I think it would be an interesting exercise to go through. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it would require an exercise. I'm not, you know, it's, it's, it's not, to me, it's not altogether open and shut. That's fair enough. Okay. Uh, so one of your specialties is affirmative action. Mm -hmm. And for the second time, the Supreme Court is hearing Fisher v. University of Texas. Mm -hmm. We were hoping you could provide some context and maybe some insight on this case. Well, I mean, a, a little bit. Mm -hmm. I, uh, this is a case involving a, a person who failed to gain acceptance at the University of Texas. Mm -hmm. This is a disappointed white applicant. And she is saying that she was the victim of racial discrimination. Now, a couple things. I think, you know, I wrote a book about affirmative action. I think that, I think that, you know, I have, I have friends whom I respect deeply who are against racial affirmative action. I am for racial affirmative action. But, you know, there are people who I respect who are against. Um, with respect to the Fisher case, I, I want to start off by saying a couple of things about the, the, the plaintiff. Number one, it's sometimes, uh, I, don't, I don't think enough attention has been given to the fact that the school authorities have said that she would not have been admitted even in the absence of what she is attacking. I mean, you know, I, I don't, I mean, I, I don't have anything against uh, Ms. Fisher, but I mean, the fact of the matter is Ms. Fisher, I'm mean, sure she was a, you know, good enough student, but from what I can tell, she wasn't a good, she wasn't a good enough student to gain admission to the University of Texas. What's so ironic here is that 
you know, people who, some people who were claiming they're so into meritocracy are grabbing, you know, her flag and are marching with her. If she had been a better student, she might have gotten in. Second, it's completely implausible. Her, her, her racial discrimination claim to me, completely implausible. This is not a case where the University of Texas is sticking it to her because she's white. There are plenty of white kids at the University of Texas. This for is fair. Sense. I can vouch for that. I'm from Texas. Uh, you go there, there are plenty of white kids. Very true. She is not being kept out of the University of Texas because she is white. Nobody is saying... We disparage white people. White people aren't as good. We want to put a lid on white people. None of that. In other words, she is not in the position that African-Americans were for a long time, were in for a long time vis-a-vis -vis the University of Texas, where, you know, for a long time, hell, a black person could have been, you know, as, as learned as in it didn't matter how learned a black person, the person could have been, you know, the Galileo, Albert Einstein, and, you know, Newton, and everybody combined. No, you can't get in because you're black. That's not what's going on here. What's going on here is an effort by the University of Texas, and by the way, the legislature mm -hmm. of Texas, to create a selection scheme that opens opportunity uh, to a wider range of people, including, and you know, it makes a special effort to uh, open up opportunity uh, to groups that have, you know, historically been kept out. Do I view that as a species of racial discrimination against people like the plaintiff in uh, Fisher versus University of Texas. No, now we can you know we could go on to debate the the merits, the wisdom of racial affirmative action, but insofar as this, insofar as her claim that she is the subject of racial discrimination, mm -hmm. I do not view that as a close case. Answer: No. Okay. Okay. Um, and moving on. Uh... For, for those of you who may not know, in the early 90s, um, Professor Kennedy was actually, uh, your main interest was campaign finance reform. Oh, mm -hmm. um, and so on the upcoming 2016 election, this issue has become you know, significantly more relevant um, in terms of how to handle campaign finances. Uh, so in your opinion, uh, what are the issues facing America's political system regarding this, uh, the finance reforms? You know, it's funny that you mentioned that. That's right. When I started law teaching, campaign finance regulation was my main interest. And, you know, the reason why I stopped it is because, or I, I sort of dropped it, mm. is because it didn't seem that as though anything was going to change. It seemed that we were just stuck. And so it seemed like it was just sort of a fallow. It, it seemed like it was an area where nothing much was going to happen. So I dropped it. I haven't really kept up with it. Fair enough. I don't have all that much to say about Fair it. Fair enough. I think that other than, other mm -hmm. than, do we have a clearly a 
messed up system? Clearly we do. And it raises deep issues. I mean, I think that what does democratic governance require? I think that really is at the heart of the debate over campaign finance. And um, I can tell you, I am deeply sympathetic with uh, Bernie Sanders' uh, charge that uh, our system is a system in which the plutocrats you know, exercise far too much power. I'm, I'm sympathetic to that. Um, I do think, though, that as a, as a nation, we need to think more deeply about, well, you know, what do we want? Mm -hmm. what, what, what sort of democratic system do we want? I don't think that we have, I don't think that there's been enough attention explicitly paid to that. And this is our fun anecdote section. Uh, you get to teach some of the brightest burgeoning legal minds of today. And we're wondering what is the most surprising comment someone has ever made in class? What's the most surprising comment what, that ever what made? What shocked you? What horrified you? What well, here's, you? A, here's an interesting one. The thing, first thing that comes to mind is something that is pertinent to things percolating on campus. After one of my classes, we were, we were discussing a case in one of my classes called Korematsu versus the United States. It's a case in which the Supreme Court of the United States upheld uh, the policy of the United States during World War II to detain uh, people of Japanese ancestry, put them under curfew, and eventually ship them to you know, camps. The Supreme Court of the United States upheld that. And we had a, I had a class about this, in my race relations law class. And in the class, I uh, one of the things, the way, the way I handled the, the, the case was to, I said, you know, we make this, often we make this case too easy in the sense that people just look at the case, condemn it, and that's all there is to it. I said, I want to handle it differently, and I'll be the spokesperson for the government. And I'll give a argument for the government, and let's, let's play around with the class. So this was, in the, this was in the 80s. I said, let's suppose, now, first of all, let's be very clear about the fact. The fact of the matter is that there was no, there was virtually, there was very there was no no suggestion of any widespread effort on the part of people of Japanese ancestry in the United States to engage in subterfuge, to engage in espionage, uh, to engage in sabotage. Mm -hmm. So let's just let's just get that you know. So let's just say that, okay. But let, let, let's change the facts around a little bit. Let's suppose let's suppose there had been. Then what? And so we, you know, we played with the facts. We we had a class about this. Well, after class, a student came down who was really angry, and he put a note on my table. 
and I opened it up and the note said, I'm really disappointed and angry because I didn't come to Harvard Law School to have a class in which we debated uh, racist action. I'm offended. And the next day when I saw the student, I said, I got your note. And as for being offended, you, you, you ended it by saying you're offended, but you know, you've got to tell me more than you, that you're offended. You've got, to, you've got to say you're offended and why you're offended. Because, you know, to tell you the truth, I think that if, you know, to, I accept that you're offended, but I think that you're unjustifiably offended. What, what, what did I do? That was that that would lead to justifiable offense. I was I was simply trying to push us to kick the tires of the Supreme Court opinion, the Supreme Court decision, and see what was there. Mm-hmm. Are there any circumstances in which one would justify this? Are there you know, or maybe the answer is no. Maybe the answer is yes. What would we say about this? So, you know, I don't, I, I think that you should just, you know, I think you should relax with your being offended and uh, let's, 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 let's grapple with the, you know, the subject before us. But that, that was one of the more notable uh, comments I've gotten in class. This student, by the way, is now a, Distinguished professor at the University of California Berkeley Law School, person I deeply respect, and uh, you know, I, hopefully he learned something from the interchange. I, I know I did. Yeah, definitely. Um, and to wrap things up, because we, we don't want to hold you here longer than you need to be. Um, but so, as the last question of our podcast, we like um, to kind of ask a constant question that surrounds this idea of success. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and it is a bit loaded. But what is your personal definition of success? Um, and what advice would you give to college students in defining their own path to success? Well, I think that there are lots. I think we live in a big world. We live in a world in which. People have all sorts of different interests. Mm -hmm. I think that people can be successful in lots of different ways. And, uh, you know, I think that, um, I think there are all sorts of different sorts of achievement. Um, I just lost my mother. I'm going to her funeral in two days. I am so sorry. Thank you. Wonderful parent. Both my parents, wonderful parents. Absolutely stellar parents. And as far as I'm concerned, what what a great success on both, you know, mother and father. Absolutely fabulous parents. It was a very difficult thing to be a good parent. Um, that's a type of success. One of the most important types. One of the types that, you know, I, 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 I give, I will give props for days for people who, who raise children to be good people and children who, who, who love them.
What a fabulous thing. Great, great. It's a great way to be successful. Person who writes a wonderful poem. You know, uh, just one, just one. Fabulous, great. Person who writes a wonderful novel. Um, person who invents something that makes our lives a bit more convenient. Person who invents something that uh, makes us able to live more healthful lives. There are lots of. I, I'm, a, I'm a big sportsman. I'm a big sportsman. I mean, I must say, I, I feel you watch, uh, you know, uh, tennis. Um, you watch people at the peak of uh, their sports. You know, you watch, you know, Roger Federer play Nadal. It's absolutely inspiring. Um, there are lots of ways in which people can be successful. And I would just urge people, I think it's a great thing if you can, if you can tap something that you really like and then push it as far as you can possibly push it. And that's great. Thank you. Unfortunately, that's all the time that we have today. Thank you again, Professor Kennedy, for joining us. And to all the listeners out there, remember to stay hungry.